Welcome to the Captain Paul Watson Foundation podcast. I'm your host, Charlie, and I am joined today with Captain Watson. Captain Watson, how are you? Pretty good. Thank you, Charlie. Good. So today, I wanted to talk to you about your latest book, uh, The Captain Paul Watson Hitman for the Kindness Club. And Paul, this book spans from 1961 to 2022. So it covers, you know, a lot of your adventures all over the world. And uh, it's a fascinating read. I wanted to ask you what prompted you to write this book? Well, it's a collection of uh, short stories, so it's an easy read. You can just read one at a time. But, uh, you know, back in, uh, oh, when I was a child, I was a member of a group called the Kindness Club. And um, that was founded by Ida Fleming, who was at the time the wife of the premier of New Brunswick, like the, the governor of New Brunswick. And uh, so she set up this club to be kind to animals, and I was a part of it. Uh, later, about oh, 12 years or later, so when I was on leading the SEAL campaign for Greenpeace on the ice off of the uh, eastern coast of Canada to protect baby seals, um, on the way back, I stopped to visit Ida. And uh, she, uh, when I was leaving, she referred to me as the hitman for the Kindness Club, which I thought was kind of funny. So that's why I decided on the... Uh, on the title for the book. So the book is really a collection of short stories of protecting animals uh, from the time I was 11 and well, until today. Yeah. And so uh, let's start then with the early years, because you mentioned your maternal grandfather and the impact that he had on your life. And there was a, I guess, instance where a man was whipping a horse uh, nearby his home. And uh, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but what kind of impact did he have on you? Well, he was a big man, and uh, this man was whipping this horse, uh, right? It was in the streets in Toronto, and uh, uh, he he grabbed the, the whip from his hand and threatened him and uh, told him if he, you know, to do that again, he would he would use the whip on him. Um, but he was, he and my mother were both very um, much involved with uh, defending and, you know, caring for animals. So uh, that was a, a, an early inspiration. Concept, it was con uh, like uh, contrary to my father, who was actually a hunter and uh, not too nice. <laughs> right. And, and you mentioned in your book, too, that your grandfather was at one time a, a bare knuckle boxer. So he knew how to handle himself in the streets. Yeah, he was a big man. He was a bare knuckle boxer. He was also a railway boss at one time. And uh you know, so he, he he knew how to defend himself. Well, you know, I can only imagine you as a young child, you know, watching a grown man tell another grown man to stop abusing an animal. I mean, that had to have an indelible impact uh, in your mind. Well, yeah, it was, certainly was a good example and also taught me uh, that it's important to stand up to uh, people who are abusing animals. Yeah. So, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead in your book because there's so much to cover, and a lot of these uh, essays and short stories that you've written are very entertaining. Um, but I did want to talk about uh, Greenpeace because, you know, you mentioned in your book that you had one of the founding members of Greenpeace. And I wanted to specifically ask you about um, your protest against the nuclear testing in Alaska. That was, uh, well, in 1969, I was involved in a demonstration at the U.S.-Canada border uh, near British Columbia, Washington, and it was against uh, the atomic testing at Amchitka Island, underground nuclear testing. And uh, the demonstration was organized by two groups, the Quakers and the Sierra Club, and I was a member of the Sierra Club at the time. So the result of that demonstration is that people from both the Sierra Club and the Quakers got together 
to come up with an idea to, you know, to oppose the uh, detonation of that underground test at Amtrak Island. And we were inspired by the fact that the Quakers in 1956 had sent a sailboat down to Bikini Atoll to directly protest the atmospheric testing down there. And so we decided, well, let's get a let's get a boat and uh, do the same thing up to, up in Alaska. And uh, at one of the early meetings, uh, as some of it was leaving the meeting, they flashed a peace sign and said peace. And Bill Darnell, uh, he said, well, make it a make it a green piece. And uh, Bob Hunter said, oh, a great name for the boat. So we named the boat that we hadn't yet secured the uh, green piece. And uh, in 72, uh, the group that we had formed called the Don't Make Away Committee officially changed its name to the Greenpeace Foundation. And so, and so later, uh, you and Bob Hunter uh, would be on a, on a boat uh, in the Pacific Ocean trying to protect sperm whales. And uh, that, that was a, a big moment in your life. Can you talk about that? Well, in 1974, there was a schism within Greenpeace because the Quakers uh, didn't want anything to do with the Save the Whale campaign. And uh, Dr. Paul Spong and Bob Hunter and I wanted to to protect the whales and uh the quakers have nothing to do with it which isn't unusual when you consider that the quakers owned the yankee whaling fleet uh you know back in the mid 1800s uh so anyway we broke off and we formed an uh you know an anti-whaling campaign called it uh uh project ahab and uh went out to hunt down the um the uh, Soviet whaling fleet that was operating uh, off the coast of California at the time. And we had come up with this idea, too. It was a very Gandhian approach, which was to put our bodies between the harpoons and the whales. And uh, it was in June of 1975, and Bob Hunter and I, we found ourselves in a small little boat in front of a Soviet harpoon vessel that was bearing down on us at full speed. And in front of us were eight sperm whales that were fleeing for their life. And every time the harpooner tried to take uh, an aim we, i would uh, maneuver the boat and block his uh, you know block the harpoon and this worked for about 25 minutes until the captain on the uh, soviet ship came running down the, the the catwalk and up to the bow and he screamed into the harpooner's ear and then he looked down on us smiled and brought his finger across his throat and that's when i realized that uh, you know gandhi wasn't going to work for us that day and a few moments later, there was this horrific explosion, went over a head, this harpoon went over a head and slammed into the backside of a sperm whale, a female sperm whale. And uh, she screamed. I didn't even know whales could scream at the time, but uh, she screamed and rolled on her side and blood everywhere. And suddenly the largest uh, whale uh, rose up out of the water, struck the, the surface of the sea with his tail and dove and swam right underneath of us and threw himself straight at the bow of the Soviet vessel. But they were waiting for him with an unattached harpoon, and the harpooner pulled the trigger and hit this uh, bull sperm whale in the head with the whale, with with the harpoon, and hit him point blank. And the whale fell back in the water and rolling in agony on the surface. There was blood everywhere. And as he was, thr was thrashing about, I caught his eye, and then I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming straight towards us. And he came up and out of the water at an angle that the next move was to come straight down and crush us. And uh, as his head rose out of the water, almost as if in slow motion, and uh, his eye was right there, this eye the size of my fist, so big. I mean, it was incredible. And also, I, so close, I could see my own reflection in the eye. And uh, that's when I felt understanding that the whale understood what we were trying to do, because I could see the effort he made the, to pull himself back. And then his head began to slide back into the sea, and his eye disappeared beneath the surface, and he died. So... He could have killed us, and you know I I I owe, I owe that whale my life. Uh, but he also inspired me to continue to do this 
the work of protecting whales and other creatures in the sea. Because as I was sitting there in the midst of the Soviet whaling fleet, and as the sun was about to go down, I said to myself, why are they killing these whales? They didn't eat them. They killed sperm whales for sperm oil and spermaceti oil, which is highly valued for high heat-resistant lubricating oil. And one of the things that it was very much in demand for, and because it was very expensive, was for the construction and maintenance of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said to myself, here we are killing these incredibly beautiful, intelligent, socially complex, self-aware sentient beings for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it struck me. We're, we're insane. <laughs> and so I said at that moment, uh, at that moment, I was going to devote my life to protecting their kind. And and that would be my first priority. Well, I mean, it is a, a very gripping story in your book, and I encourage everybody to to read that chapter because it's very telling. And like you say, it, it helps propel you forward um, into your, your next adventures. I, I did also want to, well, I want to say this, is that um, for those of you that haven't read the book yet, um, I started writing down, Paul, some of the creatures um, that, you know, you, you have a hand in protecting. And, and this isn't all of them, but it's a few. I mean, you, you talk about protecting trees, uh, you know, trying to uh, help foxes uh, in England that were a part of a fox hunt, uh, protecting wolves, beavers, seals, dolphins, obviously whales, um, fish, rabbits. <laughs> there's a there's an awesome story about you uh, saving some rabbits. Uh, that was funny. And uh, buffalo in Canada, wood buffalo, uh, pigeons in Pennsylvania, uh, obviously sharks. I mean, the list goes on and on. So, you know, while, while I know, you know, most people know you as, as marine conservation, you've done a lot of other things. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was uh, tree spiking. How did that idea come to be? And, and why is it so useful in trying to deter companies from clear cutting force? Well, in the early 80s, I came across a news story where uh, a logging operation in uh, Vancouver Island uh, was shut down for the day because uh, the saw blade hit a cannonball that had actually been fired by Captain Cook like a couple hundred years before. And, uh, you know, a, a metallic object in a tree will literally uh, shut down a, a, a sawmill for the for, for hours and hours. Uh, so came up with this idea which i called inoculating a tree against the uh, disease of clear cutting by driving a spike into a tree uh but the object is to not only spike the trees but to let everybody know that you spike the trees is sort of more of a deterrent and the first time we did that we actually set up a group called the north vancouver garden and arbor club and the object was to uh to protect the uh the the, the slope of the gross mountain facing vancouver and so we went up there and spiked about 2,000 trees all, all weekend. And then we announced it. And uh, the whole entire operation was canceled. None of those trees are still there wow. uh, because of that. And, you know, people say, well, that, you know, that's illegal. But at the time, it actually wasn't illegal. There was no law against tree spiking. Uh, that came later. But when we did it, it wasn't, it wasn't I illegal. And people say, well, you could hurt, you know, people could get hurt. I said, well, first of all, we warn people that's there. But also, if you use a chainsaw, there's a chain guard on there uh, that is set there for that for a specific reason to not cause injury. And in the sawmills, uh, the workers are behind uh, shields. So that because, you know, they're always striking stones or something like that. So it's not unusual. 
But really, it works best as a deterrent. And then we spent, all told, we spiked another 20,000 trees over a long period of time on Mears Island in Vancouver Island, uh, off Vancouver Island. And so it's a very effective tactic. And it was picked up by Earth Burst and uh, used all over the place. And of course, now it's illegal because, uh, you know, anytime you come up with an effective tactic, you're going to find some law to stop it. Right, of course. So I wanted to transition because one of the stories in your book, um, where you went around the world in in about 80 days. I think it actually took you 83 days to get all the way around the world. Um, that was a bet, and I just did that for fun. I mean, uh, I was I was a writer <laughs> for the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver at the time, and uh, I don't know how it came about, but I said, ah, I could go around the world in 80 days, but to make it interesting, I'll go, on, uh, I'll go around the world in 80 days on 80 cents. So uh, that ended up, you know, because I had sea experience i i went down to the dock and i got a job on a on a swedish merchant ship and uh that took me across the pacific through singapore to uh iran i got off in iran and unfortunately i got arrested for espionage for taking pictures in abadan and uh then uh, i was in jail for a week and then deported to kuwait and then i managed to get myself uh well actually the british government helped me because they you know i was uh, they charged with being a british agent even though it's canadian but because my passport said british subjects the iranians thought i was uh, i was british and they didn't know where canada was i remember because the biggest selling soft drink in iran at the time was canada dry and i'm got a pop bottle and i'm saying hey canada this is where i'm from and they <laughs> thought it was crazy saying i was a you know a bottle of Canada dry <laughs> and uh, the British government gave me a ticket to Rome of all places and then I worked in a, a shipyard for a couple of weeks and got enough money to get to London and then I actually got on you can't do this stuff today but I actually got on a flight to Boston because there was a charter flight for the uh, Boston Tennis Association or something so I just walked on as a member of the team and uh, you know nobody checked tickets back in the time that were ID and then I got to Boston then I hitchhiked across Canada to Vancouver so yeah, it took eighty three days. Uh, I mean that that story alone should be a movie. Uh, you know, there's a lot of parts of this book that, as you're reading it, you're like, "How is this not a movie yet?" But that just that little story, and and just the idea that you were in a prison in Iran. I mean, what what was that like? Were you scared out of your mind when they arrested you in Iran? No, I knew that. Well, I hadn't done anything wrong. I just took some pictures, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, there were some pictures. There's some soldiers in the pictures I was taking, and and Iran was not in was in conflict with the with Great Britain at the time. So they they just if I had been an American at the time, then I probably wouldn't have been arrested. But because I said British subject, that was why I was okay. arrested. Time. But um, it was an interesting experience, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of uh, interesting to have been charged with espionage. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Catch Me If You Can, that movie. And, you know, you're just kind of running around the world. You're getting on flights without a ticket. <laughs> you're, you know, you're being charged as a spy. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. And, and Well, you know, a, lot of, a lot of things we did in the 60s and 70s, you simply can't do today. <laughs> right, right. Well, okay, so that's a very entertaining part of the book, and I'll let people read more about it later. Um so I wanted to transition, Paul, to the SEALs. Uh, obviously, that's it's a big part of your book. It's a big part of what you've done. And you've, you've gone many times to oppose the SEALers uh, in Canada. Um, what drew you to that? Like, what, what was the impetus for you to say, I'm going to go up there and, and start protecting these helpless baby SEALs? Well, I was 
aware of the, of the seal hunt from a very early age because it was on the east coast of Canada. And uh, so, you know, I had been exposed to it uh, as a child. So it was something not all my life that I was concerned about. So that when I got into a position in Greenpeace where I was actually could uh, organize campaigns, I organized the first Greenpeace campaign to protect the seals uh, off of Newfoundland and Labrador and led that campaign in the spring of 1976 and again in 1977. And uh, in 76, we came up with this idea that uh, uh, to put an indelible organic dye on the baby seal, white coat seals, pelts to destroy the commercial value of the pelt. When you look at it overall, it wasn't a very effective tactic because how are we going to go around and, uh, you know, dye 100,000 seals? But the idea immediately enraged the Newfoundlanders and the government of Canada. And it was totally illegal. But the night before we began to spray the seals, we sprayed about a thousand of them with this indelible dye. The Canadian government passed a law making it illegal. So we were arrested the next morning on a law that didn't exist the day before and that we weren't aware of. And of course, ignorance of the law is no excuse, they said. Right. And since then, because of our interventions, they passed what was called the Seal Protection Act. And one of the most Orwellian set of rules and regulations ever developed, because under the Seal Protection Act in Canada, which is still in force, it's illegal to witness a seal being killed. It's illegal to uh, photograph or video of a seal being killed. So it's, um, you know, you cannot, you cannot even, if you witness a seal being killed, you can be charged under that act and go to a year in prison, really. So the only people who have ever been arrested by uh, by this have been journalists and um animal rights people and, and conservationists. So, so in, in one of the uh, campaigns that you were on to protect the seals, um, I remember you and a few others ended up um, leaving the ship at night to walk across the ice to try to get to shore. Um, and as you were recounting that, you mentioned that you and I think if, I think the other folks that were with you fell into the water. Uh, sounded like more than one time. Can you describe that? I mean, what is it like to try to walk across the frozen sea, but also knowing that chunks of ice are moving and, you know, you're like playing a bad game of Tetris trying to get across the ice uh, to safety? Well, it was a silly idea, but the uh, but the reason for this was that we knew that the uh, the Canadian government was going to seize our ship the next morning. So we knew that if they seized it, they would take it to Sydney, Nova Scotia. So uh, the four of us decided to, um, you know, leave the ship and go to shore in Nova Scotia, which is about 13 miles away. We could see the lighthouse on that. And uh, we also had two icebreakers around us. So we put white sheets over us and uh, crawled, uh, for, you know, for a few hundred yards until we were out of sight of the lights of the, of the, of the icebreakers. And um, then we proceeded to walk towards shore, which uh, would have been okay, uh, except that the wind shifted and the ice started moving around and was going in different directions. We had to, we ended up jumping from ice flow to ice flow and ice flow and took what we thought would take, uh, we'd be there before the sun came up. It ended up, we were by noon, we still hadn't reached the shore. And of course, by when we did finally reach the shore, there were uh, police officers and a lot of people from the public there waiting for us. And uh, it was kind of comical because as we came ashore, the one of the Mounties said, uh, oh, what are you people doing? He said, oh, we're a Harvard, a Harvard glaciology students. We're just studying ice conditions out here. <laughs> and they said, well, we think you're from that ship out there. And I said, what ship? Of course, you couldn't see the ship from where we were. And I said, I don't see any ship. And they said, well, come on down to the police station. If you are who you say you are, uh, you'll be okay. But as for you, Watson, uh, <laughs> I think we know who you are. <laughs> and 
So they brought us in and brought us to jail, and uh, then they drove us up to uh, to uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia, to be charged. And uh, the Crown Prosecutor for Nova Scotia said, "Well, th this is out of our jurisdiction. There's no, uh, we don't have any evidence to proceed with this." So he, he dropped all the charges against us, and that was okay, except the Mounties were furious, and then they got a, a troop transport plane. Brought all twenty of us into the into the plane with forty officers and twenty prisoners, flew us to Pierce, Quebec, uh, in, in the province of Quebec, and brought us before Judge Yvonne Mercier, who was considered the hanging judge of the Seal campaign because he found everybody guilty. He was totally on the side of the Sealers, and so uh, you know we're in jail there and got released, and we had a trial, and then we got convicted, and then it was all overturned by the Quebec Court of Appeals. So the whole thing was actually quite uh, uh, quite a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, and, and in the book, there's a few instances where you get the best of the Canadian government, um, you know, at times uh, retiring your ship, <laughs> you know, they, they say to you, you know, either pay this fine or we're going to take your ship. And you're kind of, your attitude was great. Take the ship because <laughs> I'm going to, I Well, the best way to retire a ship, you know, to retire a ship costs a lot of uh, money. Why not get the government to do it for you? So I've, I've, I've retired two ships that way. And at the same time, you uh, use the ship to uh, gain a maximum publicity for the campaign that you're doing. So in 2008, I sent the uh, the Farley Moat, our ship, into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And the ship was a Dutch-registered ship, and I put mainly a European crew on board because at the time, the European Union was looking at passing a bill to ban Canadian seal products. So we wanted to focus as much publicity on this. So what could be better than having a European flag ship uh, seized by the Canadian government? So we sent it into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and I go to the uh, Minister of Fisheries, who was really a pro seal hunter. He's from Newfoundlander, and I said, um, uh, "I said, the minister doesn't dare, doesn't dare uh, to seize our ship, you know." And of course, uh, that made him angry and angry. He sent a whole SWAT team after us to seize the ship, and the ship was seized, and the crew were all arrested. And uh, then what happened was that uh, they said, "Well, it was a seventy-five thousand dollar fine." And I said, "Well, I'm not going to pay the fine." And they said, well, you don't, you don't understand. If you don't pay the fine, then you don't get your ship. And I said, no, you can't have the ship. It's fine. And uh, that they didn't know what to do. Then they, it actually cost them over a million dollars to keep the ship in a secure area for a whole year uh, under guard because they, I, I said, ah, maybe we'll steal it back. And um, then after a year, they actually they sold the ship at auction for $5,000 to this guy who then took the ship off to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and uh, was going to do, so I don't know what he was going to do with it, but he ended up running up $60,000 in birth HP and then deserted the ship and walked away from it, leaving Lunenburg holding the ship. Well, then they uh, then turned auctioned it off for another $5,000 to the scrap merchant guy who then took it to uh, another place in Nova Scotia. And um, he was proceeding to work on it, but, you know, the ship got flooded and sunk dockside. And it ended up with the Canadian government spending a million dollars to re bring the ship to the surface again because it couldn't have a sunken ship in the harbor. And then they, they spent another million dollars to, to take it off and scrap it. So the uh, seizing of that ship uh, meant that we didn't have to pay for the uh, scrapping of the ship, and it cost the government $2 million in the whole thing. So I always called it a Lo Loyola's folly because the Minister of Fishery was a Loyola Hearn. And I uh, said, so that was one of the dumbest things that you've ever done is, uh, you know, you thought you were going to punish us and it ended up biting you in the back. Wow. So, Paul, why did you invade Russia and how did you get away with it? 
1981, we had to get evidence on um, illegal Russian whaling activities in Siberia. And you couldn't just go to Russia and document it. We weren't, weren't allowed to do that. So we decided to just do it ourselves. And so I took our vessel, the uh, Sea Shepherd 2, uh, across the Bering Sea and um, and then took a small boat uh, to shore. And uh, we went ashore. And when we got to shore, there were two Soviet soldiers patrolling the beach. And uh, they didn't do anything. We got out of the boat and started filming for 45 minutes. And the reason they didn't do anything is because nobody had invaded the Soviet Union since World War II. So they assumed we had to be Russians. I mean, who else would be there? And because of the sort of bureaucratic structure of the Soviet Union, they weren't going to, uh, they thought we were scientists, so they weren't going to come and question us. And it was only after we were returning to the boat and I was about to push the boat out with the two of the crew in the boat and one of the Russian soldiers came over, and they were really young guys, actually. And one of them came over, and he pointed at the boat, and he said, Stoyeta, what is that? And I said, oh, it's a Zodiac. It's a, it's a Zodiac. And he said, oh, it's a Mercury. It's an outboard motor, mer Mercury outboard motor. And that's when I realized, ooh, they don't have those in Russia. So he said, they're American. And I just turned my back quickly, and I said to the two guys in the boat, what's he doing? He said, well, uh, he's taking his rifle down. I said, smile, laugh, and wave. And that's what they did. And I kept pushing the boat out and ignoring him. And he didn't really know what to do. The next thing we know, he turned and he was running up to the town to get help. And we got back to the boat and we were cruising down the coast of Siberia when two helicopter gunships with big red stars on the side came over and started strafing us with flares, ordering us to stop. But I ignored them. And then uh, about 40 minutes later, uh, large Soviet frigate came out of nowhere, pulled up alongside of us and put up flags telling us to stop and finally got on the radio and said, Sea Shepherd, stop your ship and prepare to be boarded by the Soviet Union. And uh, I got back on the radio and said, well, we don't have room for the Soviet Union, so we're not stopping. And the thing with navies like that is they don't know how to deal with no. They're used to intimidation. So they they, they puts them in a real bind if you, if you disobey their orders because they didn't know what we were, and he's probably on the phone to Moscow saying, what the hell's going on here, and what do I do? And by the time he finally decided what he could do, we were back in U.S. waters, and we got the evidence which we delivered to the International Whaling Commission. So, and and you have a few other instances in the book where you stand up to large navies uh, like the Norwegian Navy. Um, you, you've played the high-stakes game of chicken a few times with much larger vessels. Um is that just, I mean, what led you to, to know that that strategy was going to work? It, it, was it just your knowledge that they didn't know how to handle? You well, you have to know who you're dealing with. I mean, we've had confrontations with the Spanish, the Norwegians, uh, the Canadians, uh, the Russians, uh, but and the Portuguese. But uh, the only country I wouldn't do it with is with the United States because the U.S. Coast Guard Navy, they just blow you out of the water. That's, uh, you know, they're a bunch of cowboys. So, But uh, most other countries are... Uh, pretty bureaucratic and you have to you're gambling on their the bureaucratic nature of it i know with the norwegians uh norwegian navy ship that uh was chasing us uh he's he said he ordered us to stop and i said no and he says well we have the hot from the highest authority in norway to stop you i said yeah so well then stop i said i'm not gonna stop to you i don't care who your higher authority is and uh then he fired over top of us with his deck gun. Then he fired in front of us, and I ignored him. Then they had a small boat they dispatched and dropped four uh, depth charges underneath of us, and uh, that didn't stop us. And then he tried to intimidate us by cutting us off, but he miscalculated, and he rammed us. He ripped the front of the bow off, but at the same time, that jagged bow 
did a 45 foot gash like a can opener on his own hull so he caused himself more damage and he chased us for 500 miles all the way to the shetland islands and when we got entered uk waters he had to back off so you know we took on the norwegian navy and and we outmaneuvered them wow uh, yeah, I mean, and, and those I will say, you know, to folks, again, that haven't read the book, you know, those moments in your book are really compelling. And, and you know, some of some of it's, you know, scary, and you're on the edge of your seat, like what's going to happen next. And then, you know, a lot of times you're kind of laughing at the bureaucracy and, and these, you know, these big captains telling you what to do, and you're just, you know, ignoring them. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Well, that's all you can do with bureaucrats is laugh at them, you know, because, that's the real problem in the world is bureaucracy is allowing a lot of this destruction to take place, you know, and it's just business as usual. And, you know, the laws, uh, the, the regulations, the laws always protect the industries over anybody trying to protect, uh, you know, life and, and resources. So you, you've also uh, mentioned in your book uh, the sinking of, you know, some pirate whaling ships, um, most notably the Sierra. Um how did you get away with, with sinking the Sierra? What happened with the Sierra is that uh, I rammed it in the harbor in La Chose in Portugal. And then the Portuguese Navy actually intercepted us and brought us back. And I was brought before the port captain in La Chose, who, and I was charged with gross criminal negligence. And I said to the port captain, well, there wasn't anything negligent about it. We, uh, I hit that ship exactly where I intended to hit it, so it wasn't negligence. And the port captain laughed, and he said, well, the problem I have is I don't know who owns that ship, and until I do, well, you're free to go. And I remember when I left the port captain's office, so uh, you know, of, of the twenty crew that I had, seventeen of them got off the ship for before I did the ramming because they thought they were going to go to prison or whatever. And uh, as I got out, one of the crew said, "Well, if I knew you were going to get away with it, I would have been there." And I said, "Well, sometimes you got to do things that, you know, you know, there's no escape, there's no way out, and uh, you just do it." And uh, it's amazing how many times you can get away with it. But the Sierra, then the Sierra's owners uh, bribed a judge in Portugal. And he, without a trial, without a hearing, he just turned the ship over to the Sierra's owners. Um, and uh, so I had no choice. Uh, six months later, I, I scuttled the Sierra. I scuttled the Sea Shepherd dockside in La Shows to keep it out of their hands. And then two months later, we uh, sank the Sierra dockside in Lisbon. Yeah. And, and not only, I guess, the Sierra, but, you know, you, you've also had successful missions to sink ships in Norway and in Iceland. Um, did, that, did that jar the whaling fleet in Iceland and Norway when you were able to sink those ships? In 1986, we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet. Two of their four vessels were scuttled in Reykjavik Harbor. Uh, the whale processing um, plant was shut down. Uh, we, you know, sabotage that completely. And uh, that ended, ended up costing a significant amount of money and the ships were uninsured. I mean, insurance wouldn't pay out because it was basically an act of war. So we did, uh, uh, you know, we stopped them for quite a few years uh, from, from killing whales. So it was a very effective action. Uh, I know that at the uh, International Whaling Commission uh, that followed that, the sinking, in, uh, I guess that would have been in the spring of 87, uh somebody from Greenpeace came up to me and said, uh, you know, what you did in Iceland was despicable and reprehensible. And I said, yeah, well, so what? I said, well, aren't you concerned about people in the movement think about you? I said, no, not really. I, you know, we didn't, didn't sink those ships for you. Uh, we sunk them for the whales. Uh, but if you find me a whale that disagreed with what we did, I promise we we'll, won't do it again. 
Um, and then in 1988, I actually flew to Reykjavik and, uh, turn myself in because I said, you know, I've been writing you guys for a year about, do you have any charges against us for what we, what we did? And you got, you refused to answer. So uh, I'm here. Uh, what are the charges? Well, they took me into interrogation and uh, they said, are you admitting to sinking these ships? I said, yeah, we sunk them. We're going to sink the other two at the first opportunity. And the next morning they just escorted me to the airport, put me on a plane and told me to go back to New York. Actually, they sent two police officers to make sure I got back to New York. <laughs> uh, but the minister of justice in Iceland said, who does he think he is? He comes into our country and demands to be arrested. Get him out of here. Uh, you know, and so the, because they knew that to put me on trial would be to put themselves on trial for their illegal whaling. So I was counting on that that trial. So, you know, Iceland is still killing whales illegally. We shut them down this year. Or we shut them down another year. We shut them, you know. But uh, in last year, they killed 23 whales, but uh, they were banned from whaling for two months. And we're going to, that's going to be our major campaign this uh, this year is to stop them from killing any whales come June uh, of 2024. So, and I wanted to transition then uh, from Iceland over to the Faroe Islands because you've been going to the Faroe Islands, um, you know, off and on, um, and, and quite successfully. And one of your, uh, missions that you talk about in the book, uh, the Pharaoh, one of the Pharaoh people says to you something to the effect of, well, we're not going to kill any pilot whales while you're here so that you can't film it and you don't have a show <laughs> to which, you know, you, you were quite well, pleased with that. <laughs> Well, in 2011, uh, on one of the Whale War series, they wanted to do it about the Faroe Islands. And uh, so we took the ships to the to the Faroe Islands with the Whale War crew. And that was the Faroese tactic was, well, we're not going to uh, kill any whales while you're here, because if we don't kill any whales, you don't have a show. And uh, I said, well, our point is that you don't kill any whales. So we don't care whether <laughs> we have a show or not. Anyway, we did do the show uh, because there's a lot of past footage of what they did. So um but yeah, that was that, that was a very successful summer, and that they no whales were killed. Yeah, and and so going forward with the Faroe Islands, what, what do you what do you think are some of the keys maybe to uh, getting the Faroese to stop hunting pilot whales and dolphins? Well, it's been a long process. When we first went there in 1983, I would say 100 percent of everybody in the Faroe Islands was pro killing whales and dolphins. Uh, now I think that figures under 50%. So a lot of people, there are people in the Faroe Islands now who are against it, some actively, some passively, but uh, a lot has changed. And uh, so it's it's a tough one because the whole Faroese uh, killing of uh, whales called the Grindadraf, which in Old Nordic literally translates as the murder of whales, uh, is part of this tradition, like the bullfight in Spain or fox hunting in England. And they're very, very stubborn and persistent about it, saying, uh, you know, I remember when Prime Minister Atlee Dam said in 1986, he says, well, this is a gift from God. God gave us this. And I pointed out that in Leviticus, you're not allowed to eat anything from the ocean that uh, that doesn't have scales. And therefore, whale meat is uh, forbidden under in the Bible. And he said, this is special exemption by God for us. I mean, they justify anything, really. But uh, this is how entrenched it is. They believe somehow or other, a lot of Faroese seem to think that their entire identity as a Faroese person lies in having to, you know, kill dolphins and whales. Mm. It's very bizarre. Yeah. But it's not any different than killing bulls or, or fox hunting, really. Right. So uh, I also wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned whale wars, and, and a good chunk of whale wars takes place in the southern uh, 
whale or Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. Um, and, you know, you were extremely successful in uh, minimizing the amount of whales that uh, the Japanese could could kill. But uh, if, if my understanding is correct, there, there could be a new threat on the horizon uh, that the Japanese are potentially gearing up to go down there again and hunt whales. Uh, are, are you preparing for that, or, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, we are prepared to return because Japan, uh, uh, they retired the Nishan Maru, their factory ship, and then they built a new one, at, you know, over $100 million to build a new factory ship. The only purpose for having a pelagic uh, factory ship is to go to the Southern Ocean. They don't need it off their own coast. So that ship has now been completed. So I would expect them to resume whaling in the Southern Ocean either at the end of 2024 or at the end of uh, 2025. Uh, but it could happen as early as uh, the end of this year. And it's a, it's a whale sanctuary. So, so Paul, I don't understand why no one is protecting this sanctuary. I mean, how, how do I wrap my, my mind around that, that, that it's up to you and your crew to do something about it? Why, why wouldn't a government like Australia, uh, close to the Southern Ocean or New Zealand, why, why wouldn't somebody do something? Well, we have all the rules, regulations, laws, and treaties we need to protect life in the ocean. The problem is we have a lack of economic and political motivation to enforce those laws. There's no money in it. There's no profit in it. And uh, so governments do whatever they want. Outside that 200-mile limit, it's sort of the old west. And, uh, you know, whaling, the commercial whaling has been illegal since 1986, uh, and yet Iceland and Japan and Norway have all been killing whales. And I'd say some 20,000 whales have been killed illegally since 1986. And uh, they do it because they're, they're allowed to do it. Uh, there are, you know, we, we just simply, uh, governments are too many trade agreements between these countries, U.S. and Iceland, U.S. and Japan, Australia and Japan and everything like that. The, the, that always takes precedence over anything, you know. Well, you know, we don't want to offend the Japanese. They might not buy our coal, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's all very, very difficult. And, I mean, all we've ever done is uh, intervene against illegal activities. And uh, somehow or other, we're being treated as uh, the criminals. And they call us pirates and everything else. But the, but the fact is, is that uh, they are the ones that are, they are the criminals. And we're intervening against criminal operations. Yeah. So... Last thing that, that I want to touch on, um, and, and actually I meant to touch on it earlier, but, you know, we kind of started talking about other things, but you escaped from Germany. And, um, you know, it is, again, much like you're around the world in 80 days, it's fascinating uh, that, you know, you were in Germany, you were under house arrest, as I understand it, and yet you were able to sneak away and... Uh, and in, I guess in today, the Germans aren't, you know, coming after you and it wasn't really them that wanted you anyway. It was Japan by way of Costa Rica that were, you know, trying to uh, get you extradited. What, what was that period of time like for you, uh, being when in I was arrested? Arrest. When I was arrested in Germany, uh, you know, it was under, um, an extradition request by Costa Rica and then another one from Japan, Costa Rican for interfering with a shark finning operation, which I did at the request of the Guatemalan government and Japan for the charge of trespassing on a whaling ship, even though I didn't actually set foot on any whaling ship. 
uh, they said it was conspiracy to trespass, whatever. But, um, you know, I, I thought uh, everything would be okay in Germany because the, Ger the German judges, the German prosecutor, everybody was very sympathetic. The public is very sympathetic. But the minister, the foreign minister, uh, and the justice minister decided, no, they were going to extradite me to Japan. So I got a call from a supporter in the Ministry of Justice on a on a Friday, and they said, when you go into the police station on Monday, you're going to be arrested and extradited to Japan. So on Sunday... Uh, I left uh, Germany and went to the Netherlands, and Lamia Esanlai from the uh, Sea Shepherd France had arranged for a boat to pick me up, a sailing boat. And I got on that boat and sailed across the Atlantic uh, to uh, the coast of Nova Scotia. Now, I didn't have any papers, no passport, nothing. So uh, I had to get ashore from the boat in Nova Scotia. And then from there, I uh, went into New Brunswick and crossed into the U.S. on the Canadian border on the New Brunswick main border. And then uh, I was driven across uh, the U.S. to California, and then I got on board the Bridget Bardot, or the vessel, uh, the you know, off of Catalina Island, which then took me across the Pacific to American Samoa, where I rejoined the Steve Irwin, and then went down to the Southern Ocean, uh, confronted the Japanese whaling fleet again, came back, and uh, spent the next six months uh, in exile in islands of Tonga and Samoa and the Great Barrier Reef until uh, uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, allowed me to return saying that the, uh, the the whole charge against me by Japan was uh, was ridiculous. Wow. And, and, and that time in exile, uh, when you were, how did you pass the time, those six months on those islands? Well, mainly picking up plastic debris on the shores and the, the beaches of the Tongan Islands or the Barrier Reef. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, you know, I, I'll encourage folks, if you want to know more, to read Paul's book. It, it is absolutely incredible. It'll keep you on the edge of your seat. Uh, last question, Paul, is what does the future hold for you? Well, right now I'm uh, in France and, uh, you know, uh, coordinating campaigns for Sea Shepherd France and also working with the Captain Paul Watson Foundation to uh, make plans to intervene against the killing of whales in Iceland this summer and also the killing of whales and dolphins in uh, in the Faroe Islands. Uh, we're right now involved with um, a campaign to oppose uh, uh, super trawlers and, uh, in the English Channel and off the coast of Ireland. And um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing. <laughs> awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk next time. Oh, thanks, Charlie. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, Paul. I want to thank Captain Watson for his time today. It's always a pleasure uh, catching up with him. I really enjoyed reading his book, Hitman for the Kindness Club. If you too would like to read this book and pick up a copy, uh, you can go to our shop. Uh, the website is shop.paulwatson.com. And if you go there, you'll see at the very top, there is a tab for books. If you click on books, it's, I believe, the first uh, book on the list. And um, you can pick yourself up a copy. It is a fascinating read. It goes by quick because it's so entertaining. Uh, obviously, some of it's sad, but, you know, it's all really important information. And if you want to follow Paul's career, uh, this is a great way to get an in-depth look at the things that Paul has done for our planet and uh, for the animals that, that live on the earth. I also wanted to mention that on our shop, uh, we recently started 
um, providing a fine art done by one of our crew members. Her name is Simone Eisenbeiss. Uh, she is a Swiss artist uh, that served on a campaign last year, and she did some of her paintings while she was on campaign. So if you're into uh, art that depicts marine life, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Um, it's really wonderful, and it's a good way to help support the foundation. I also wanted to thank everybody that listened to the podcast last year. Uh, we did extremely well. And uh, I got a lot of great feedback from folks. So again, really thank you all for tuning in. I'm excited about 2024. Uh, When the crew goes on campaign, I'll be checking in with them and trying to give everyone updates via the podcast. And certainly we'll have uh, more guests in 2024. So I'm really excited about what's around the corner. If you would like to support the foundation and support Paul's work, I would encourage you to go to our main page, and that is paulwatsonfoundation.org. If you go there, you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, That is a really great way to hear from Paul himself, but also to stay informed with what's going on with the foundation. Certainly on our uh, webpage, you can also donate. And if, uh, if you are able to donate, Uh, You just help Paul realize his dream of ending whaling in his lifetime. And he needs our help. He needs our support. And and quite frankly, uh, reading about all the things that Paul has done for our planet, it's sort of the least we can do uh, to help him realize his dream of ending whaling in his lifetime. So if you are able to support Paul and uh, his direct action, nonviolent approach, then I strongly encourage you to donate to the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. I also wanted to to add that um, Sea Shepherd France has been a wonderful ally for the Captain Paul Watson Foundation, and uh, we've done some joint campaigns with them, and they believe uh, in the the same things that that Paul believes. And Lamia Esimlali has really been at the forefront of making sure that Sea Shepherd France uh, stands for the right things and puts the animals first. And so if that is something that um, you know speaks to you, uh, then supporting Sea Shepherd France or the Captain Paul Watson Foundation uh, is, is getting that job done. So I, I just wanted to clear that up a little bit. I know it's a little confusing for folks that you know used to be su- supporters of the, the larger Sea Shepherd entity, but you know Paul has started this new Captain Watson uh, Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And uh, he's done so in order to keep doing direct action. And uh, Sea Shepherd France uh, has, again, been a great ally and and is coming right along with Captain Watson. So I just wanted to try to clear that up. Um, So again, thanks to Captain Paul. And I hope you all get a chance to read his book because it is very entertaining. And lastly, I will uh, leave you with this episode, which is being brought to you by Somniosis microcephalus. Thanks again. Till next time.
the oceans die, we die.